Verse 11, chapter 9. But now, this is it once again, this is what the law was pointing towards. This is what the tabernacle was pointing towards. You had this external tent. But now, Christ has appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come. He passed through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation. And he entered once and for all into the most holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, since so he himself secured eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of young cow sprinkled on those who are defiled, consecrated them and provided ritual purity, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? So the contrast is between the restricted access to God that the law and the tabernacle provided to the total access to God that Christ provides. But now Christ has appeared as a high priest. The good things has come. He passed through the greater sanctuary. So reason number one, that Christ is greater than the Levitical sacrificial system. Reason number one, that Christ is greater than the Levitical sacrificial system. Chapter 7 was how he's greater than the priesthood. Now this is how he's greater than the sacrifice of the priesthood. The first reason is that he, his sacrifice, gives us a greater access to God. Not to a gold box and fire, but to the throne of God itself. As chapter 4 said, we can boldly and confidently go to the throne of God now. So the first way is he entered once and for all. Once, notice again, once and for all. He didn't enter every year over and over and over again like the priests. He entered once and for all. So the second reason that Christ sacrificed the greater Levitical system is that unlike the Day of Atonement, it happened one time. Not one time a year over and over again. That one time a year points to a one-time event. But it's not annual. It's eternal. The third reason that Christ sacrificed the greater Levitical priesthood is that Christ did not enter into the heavenly sanctuary of the blood of animals, but He entered with His own perfect blood. He entered with His own perfect blood because He is eternal his blood eternally covers us. And because He's perfect, the blood of a perfect thing covers us. Now remember, there's nothing magical about blood. It's not that blood is covering you, atones you. Blood is just a symbol of life. Right? They don't have EKGs to measure whether your brain is still working or not. Your heart can stop pumping and you can still be alive for a while. The only way you really know something is dead is if you bleed it out. When there's no more blood, you know it's dead. Okay, You can stop breathing, your heart can stop beating, your brain waves can go flat for a while, and you can still come back to life. And it's not resurrection, it's not a miracle, sometimes it's just biology. But when you're bled out completely with no blood left in your body, you are dead. And so blood, and a blood is what's necessary to keep everything going. I mean, you could say oxygen, but without blood you can't circulate the oxygen. And so the reality is blood is a symbol of life. So the point is not the blood covering you. The blood is just the physical sign of life, which you cannot see. And so it's the life of Christ is what covers you. His life was given for yours. His righteousness replaces your lack of righteous life. Your dead, cold heart has been replaced with His life beating, living, intimate, loving, kind heart. That's the point of blood. 
as a replacement, a substitutionary sacrifice here. And so he entered with his perfect blood to secure eternal redemption. If Christ is perfect and eternal, then his blood is perfect and eternal. Therefore, if he offered his life and blood as a sacrifice, his sacrifice is perfect and eternal, which means his covenant is perfect and eternal because it's inaugurated with the perfect eternal blood, which means his redemption is perfect and eternal. And that's what he's been building here. This is why the sacrificial system is the foundation for everything, not the Ten Commandments. As important as they are, they're not the foundation. You don't build your country, your nation, your family on the Ten Commandments. You build it on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because without the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how many times you have the Ten Commandments on your wall or you've memorized them, it's not going to change your life. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is what gives you the ability to do the Ten Commandments. And not just in a ten-rule point, but in a living, relational, all-aspects-of-life kind of sense. And that's why it's so important to understand that that's not the foundation. The sacrifice of Christ is the foundation. And everything falls apart without that. An eternal redemption. Here's the reason why. Okay, okay, oh, I've got to just take your word for it. Christ's sacrifice is better, and it happened one time. Whatever. When he says, why? For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of young cows sprinkled on those who are defiled and consecrated them, provided ritual purifying, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? Look, he's not arguing that in some way the blood of animals did cover your sins. They did. If they didn't, then God wouldn't be able to be with you for another year. But the point is this, if they had to keep offering them over and over again, then why was there a need for another sacrifice? He's kind of already made that point. If one sacrifice is enough, then you don't need to do it again next year. So the fact that they had to keep doing that. Now, this is the point. If the blood of goats and animals are actually able to cover your sins a little bit, then how much greater would God's life be able to cover your sins and redeem you? If you really truly think the sacrificial system of animals was good enough, then how much more will the eternal living God be? The eternal living God. Through the eternal spirit offered himself, once again offered himself, without blemish to God, purify your consciousness and then your dead works. And now you're able to worship the living God. Now, what is worship in the Bible? It is not praising God. Every single time you see that... Now, praising God is good. We're commanded to do that. It's all over the Psalms. But worship is never, ever, ever, ever used of praising God in the Bible. It's always used of a transformed life that obeys. The worst two words for worship start in Genesis. To work until the garden. That's worship. Those In the Hebrew, those words are worship. How do you worship God? By expanding His garden. The garden is His kingdom, and you expand it, and that's how you worship God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is your spiritual act of worship. How do you do that? You're presenting your bodies as a sacrifice, as an offering. You're giving your entire life as obedience to God, which is what Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. That's obedience. And then once you worship God throughout the week, 
as you obey and expand the garden, you will see God show up in your life because Jesus says, if you're my friends, you will obey me. It's the only time he ever calls you a friend in the Bible. If you obey, if you worship. So as you worship and obey, and the only way you can obey is through the Holy Spirit. So then as you surrender to the Holy Spirit, you obey, and as you obey, you become God's friend. As you become God's friend, you get to know your friends a little bit better as you spend more time with them. And so you see God show up in your life in ways that you never would if you hadn't worshipped, and then now you have a reason to praise God. Because it's not words anymore, it's a real experiential thing that you had that week. And that's what he's saying. Now... We are able to worship God, obey Him, serve Him, do His will, because not our works, not because of animal sacrifices, not because of the tabernacle, not because of rituals, not because of details, but because He has purified our conscience. He has removed our guilt. He has removed our shame. He has given His life. He has given us the ability to submit to the Holy Spirit which allows us to actually obey so we can really truly worship God and make Him pleased so that He can say, well done, good and faithful servant one day. Because an animal's blood can't do that. If the only way you can worship God and be His friend is through obedience, then all you have is an animal's blood in the First Testament. And I don't think any of us want to put our life in the hands of an animal's blood. And that's what he keeps pointing to. And every God is killing 50 million birds with one stone in Jesus Christ. Because everything just keeps... This is why Hebrews is not like a logical argument. A, B, C leads to D, which leads to E. It's an organic thing. And everything is moving and leading to and being tied into Christ at the center. From dead works. Your works are no longer dead anymore. Any questions, comments? I think it's that the concept of eternal redemption versus that business earlier. Exactly. That I was trying to find, I don't know why I can't exactly, but of um, walking away, turning your back. If you do that, there's no coming back. Yeah. That Those things are kind of fighting in my head a little bit because I, I'm out of balance between... Um, the loving part and the sovereign part, because I always see him as a loving God, and mm-hmm. he's always going to be there for me. He's always going to take me back. He's he's going he's given me eternal redemption. But what I put that up against that earlier kind of warning that said, "Turn your back on me, walk away, and yeah, you only have one chance with me." Kind of it sounds like. Well, it's not that you. And this is the difficult thing. It's not that you only have one chance to accept Him. It's not that you only have one chance to hear about Him. Like, we don't know when that point of no return is. I mean, we can go through many testimonies where people have come back to God after so many lifestyles. So many people witnessed to them, and they were like, it wasn't until the umpteenth time that somebody came in my life that I finally accepted the gospel and stuff. What he's warning against is not rejecting the gospel one time. Or what he's warning is that... You have literally stood in the presence with a full knowledge of that sacrifice and said, forget it. Yeah, that you said, I fully understand what that sacrifice is. I get that that is my only hope to God. I get that 
it is so perfect and great in any no other way. And there's no, but I don't want it. I don't care. And, and that's what I'm saying is like, yes, he will always be there for you. And get, but he, but not if you just shake your fists at him and say, forget you. Because, and, and that's no different than realizing that if you die in rejecting Jesus Christ, you're going to go to hell. I mean, we know that and we believe that. And that's all he's really saying. The, the warning that he's giving is that you might pass that point of no return before death. And, and that's the thing is, like, I know sometimes it's hard to, to get in our minds, but really, how is it any different? Like, we, we understand that the point of no return is death. So what is just a couple years earlier than that? I mean, e- I mean, even if you draw it out for a couple thousand more years after death, there's still going to be a point where there's a point of no return. And so in the grand scheme of eternity, a couple more years of you hitting that point is not really that different. And so I think that's all he's warning is that point of no return might come before death. It's not that he's not there for you anymore. It's not that there's still not an opportunity. It's just that, remember, that's the parable. It's like, when, I mean, even if we think about if Christ comes back tomorrow, then the point of no return is for a lot of people before death. And that's the point of the parable. If you keep waiting for the 12th hour, it might be the 11th hour. And so I think that that's the warning is, is don't fall in the trap that death is the point of no return. It may be before that. But that shouldn't really, and I'm not making light of your struggle because that's a struggle with me too, but it shouldn't be that much more struggle just to push that back a couple more years for some people. But the other thing too is we must understand this isn't somebody's like, well, I'm not sure or... I don't know, give me more time, or I'm an agnostic, or no, you know, I don't want to go to church with you, or that Jesus, I don't want. This is someone who has, they could be a teacher themselves, they know so much, and they've rejected it all. And that's the warning, is you're literally looking at the perfect eternal sacrifice, and you're saying no. And that's the reality. With the animal sacrifice, there is another animal sacrifice the next year, and the next year, and the next year. But for this, there's one time sacrifice. So if you reject that sacrifice, there is no next year coming. There is no next year. And, and so we have to remember too, there are plenty of passages in the Bible where God makes it clear that He's against us. He's against Israel. Israel reached the point of no return in their life too. Um, and, and Ananias Sephoris reached the point of no return. Like God didn't wait for them to die naturally. He struck them down right then and there. And so we know that... The, not that people who die of cancer and that kind of stuff are dying because they've rebelled against God and they've committed some horrible sin, but the Gospels make it clear that some people have died of cancer or car accidents because God was literally killing them right there on the spot for sin. And so that's the reality. Sometimes He chooses your point of no return is now and you keep living. Sometimes He chooses to strike you down dead. Sometimes he lets you die of natural causes. Sometimes he uses a flood. Sometimes he uses a war. Sometimes he uses plagues. But the reality is God can decide whenever he wants when that point of no return is. And, and I, th- I think that's the hard part is we're okay with God maybe killing the people in the flood. And I'm not saying we're totally okay, but we're used to that because we've heard that for so long. I think it's just hard for us to realize that somebody might meet the point of no return and not be dead. But I don't think that's anything different than you being 20 years old and hitting the point where you know return and God killing you in the flood. And for that, it's just God saying you've hit that point.
because you've rejected me in my entirety. And that's the thing, like, that's a horrible evil sin. To look at Christ in the face and fully understand what he's done and said, it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. And so, like, the people who are oblivious to that... It's not them. They, they'll never know that eternal redemption. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like God, you know, God's not going to reach yeah. And and so in that sense, you've got people out there who are oblivious to the gospel and they'll never know it. Which God makes very clear in the Bible that everybody has the gospel laid on their hearts and their mind and through creation. We just choose to pursue it or not. And you've got some people who are not oblivious and they choose to reject it. And then that's the thing. And we're not talking about my next door neighbor who's not quite sure. We're talking about somebody who knows enough that they could be a teacher. We're talking about us. We're talking about me. We're talking about your pastor. And if he chooses one day to say, you know what, I never really meant it and I don't care, that's a dangerous spot to be in. And and, and, and that's offensive. That would be offensive to all of us, let alone a holy, righteous God who gave his son to atone for sins. And I think we that's where the balance is, is, yes, God will never abandon us. He's always faithful to us, even when we're not faithful, Timothy. And he'll never he'll always pursue us to the end of the earth. But we can't let that violate the fact that he's also a God that we sin against. And and what horrible greater sin could you commit than to fully understand who Jesus is and say, Forget you. Forget you. And in that sense, God is still God. And he's not safe. And it's a and as he says. It's not just a old-time tent preacher, fire and brimstone. It's the Bible saying it's a horrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God, and that's what we need to understand: is God sent a flood and killed people. God sent plagues and killed people. God gave Israel permission to genocide the Canaanites. God does a lot of. God sends people to hell. As much as I understand that, and I'm okay with that in a theological sense, it's still like, wow, God. There's a lot of things that God does that sometimes in our perfect American can't we all get along and love, 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 all we need is love. We don't fully grasp that. And I think the reason we don't really feel like grasp is we don't really truly appreciate and we never will understand what it's like to be a perfect, holy, righteous God and to be sinned against. That's something that I... I can't even spend two seconds trying to explain that because that's where my knowledge ends. We are so thoroughly evil and screwed up that we can't appreciate what it means to be sin against and how angry. And then His wrath is poured out on us. And that's why, when you, when the, this is why Romans makes the point, is when you begin to understand better and better and better how horribly evil you are, that you in your heart, you in your essence are a rapist, you're a homosexual, you're a murderer, you hate God, you're not with Him, that there's nothing good in you, that even the littlest sins of just white lies has offended Him and disgraced Him and poured out and has made His wrath boiled up. And yet despite that, He pursues you and refuses to divorce you and He sends His Son to die on a cross for you. And, he, and then he puts the Holy Spirit in you and he, and he allows the Holy Spirit to be with your filthy mind and your actions and your selfishness and, and he keeps transforming you. Then the one who is forgiven of much loves much. 
the one who realizes who they really are, one who realizes that they're capable of that. They're capable of that. They could have been there if it had not been for the grace of God. Then that's the one who really clings to Christ and never, ever, ever wants to reject that. And that's the point that Romans is making. And, and that's what allows us to appreciate God even more. Yes. How would you answer somebody who says, How could a perfect God create humans who are so imperfect? Ah, that's, that's a good question. Ultimately, I don't know how to really answer that question. Um, yeah, but one part of it is I would say free will. I mean, as perfect as you get, how many people really want a perfect robotic husband or children or wife? I mean, ultimately, you can make this thing so perfect, but if it's programmed only to obey you all the time, that's not a relationship. This, and the second thing I would say is C.S. Lewis, I'm going to steal from him, the more perfect you make something, the more horrible it can be when it actually fails. I think one of the reasons that sin... Now, first of all, we're, we were never made perfect. That's the other thing we need to understand, too. We were not perfect, we were made good. Because we did not have perfect knowledge. We weren't perfect like God. We were just made good. We, we, there were limits to us. And so, we were made good. But, seriously, this is the point, like, the better I make something, like, when my little girl, I don't know, this, if I draw a, smi- a smiley face on the paper, and that gets ripped up, that's not going to be as traumatic as a painting a Van Gogh and it getting ripped up. The more beautiful, the more perfect, the more amazingly designed and creative something is when it gets destroyed, the more horrific that is. And the more perfect something is, and the more that is capable of in a perfect good state, then when that thing becomes evil, the more evil it's capable of as well. So someone who's a genius is capable of far more evil and destruction than somebody who doesn't really know much at all. And our movies are made of that. The best villains in movies are the geniuses because they can create the greatest havoc and destruction and mayhem than anybody else can who can barely add two and two together. And so I think that's the point here is like the more perfect and more potential God gives us to be kings and priests then when we become evil kings and priests, the more vile our sin and destruction becomes. And, I mean, and sometimes I, I wonder, why didn't he just start where we're going to end up? He did. <laughs> but, but you know what I'm saying? Where we're going to be with him forever, we're going to be like him. Yeah. Well, part of it is this. Part of it is that's where we did start. We're not ending... Right, we're not going to be able to fall again. Yeah. But... We had to have the free will in order to have a relationship with Him. Here's, here's what I think. This is me, not God. It may be God. I think that the reason... See, in the garden we had the tree of life and the tree of knowledge, which means you have a choice. And I think you had to have a choice to really truly have a relationship with God for the reason I mentioned already. I don't want a robot as a friend. But when we get to the new earth and the new heaven... There's two trees on either side of the river, but they're both the tree of life, which means you will no longer have a choice anymore. But here's the thing. He's not taking our free will away. Now, first of all, we don't have free will either. We have free choice, because free will means we're free to do whatever we want. But 
we don't have free will because eventually your free will will butt up against the will of God. Which means it's not free to reign. You have free choices. So we will have no choice between good and evil. And I think the reason is this. You already made that choice. You made the choice to surrender your life, crucify it, and give it over to God. And you died in Christ. You crucified yourself. You killed your will. You killed your desire. You killed your hopes. You killed your hopes and dreams, and you replaced them for God's will. Not my will, but God's will be done. The, the problem is with the sin in our life is we keep taking it back. And this is why the sinner in me who needs to be redeemed keeps taking it back. But the one who's sealed in the Holy Spirit and will always forever be saved and the good work that began in me will always come to a completion made the choice and surrendered completely. So when you get to heaven, there will be no more sin in your life anymore so you won't be keep taking that free will back or that free choice back from God. But at the same time, you still have free choice in heaven because you made a choice to follow God and not your will The difference is now that you're redeemed and there's no more sin, you actually can honor that choice for all eternity. Does that kind of make sense? So it's still the garden and you still have choice. The difference is you now have been redeemed to the point that you won't try to take that back from God anymore. And so he had to start in the garden because he had to give you a choice so that there could be a real relationship. He ends up back at the garden again. The difference is we've made the choice, and this time we chose rightly. Adam and Eve chose wrong, and it led to the fall. Those who are left in the garden after God has judged the world are Adam and Eve all over again, but this time they chose rightly. And so it's the garden all over again. It's exactly what he created. It's just this time we made the right choice in the wilderness and the Holy Spirit allows us to stick with that choice so that we can enter into the garden again. Does that kind of make sense? And that's my best explanation. This is Christ. He is our amazing Redeemer. And He is far greater than anything in creation. Lord, I just thank You so much for who You are. I thank You for being unlike anything else for being unique, for being awesome, for being powerful. And I thank you so much for descending into our lives and entering into us, renewing our spirits and our heart and giving us a mind and a heart that actually begins to understand how amazingly complex, beautiful, creative you are and your plan of redemption is. And then it goes way beyond anything that we've understood now and will can ever understand. And we thank you that you have done all the details for us. And you've done them perfectly in your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.